Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing Autumn DeWilde's new adaptation of Jane Austen's novel, Emma, starring Anya Taylor-Joy as the spoiled, rich busybody Emma Woodhouse, Johnny Flynn as her neighbor, Mr. Knightley, Mia Goth as her protege, Harriet Smith, and a host of others, including Bill Nye and Josh O'Connor. So we, this is a bit delayed. I have been dealing with kidney stones, which I do not recommend to anyone. I finally saw this movie today, so we are here talking about it, coming from very different perspectives, because I have read this book numerous times, have now seen every major adaptation. I think at the very least, you have now earned a couple of like senior college credits in Emma specifically, yes. whereas my whole experience of Emma is watching this film, enjoying it somewhat. And watching Clueless, which we podcasted about last week. So um, we could not have two more opposing views. So we'll be attempting to meld that somehow together into into a coherent podcast episode this week. I feel like I can now say with authority that Clueless is absolutely the best adaptation of Emma. So we have covered that. We've covered that important base with our episode from last week. I am sure we will be referring to Clueless in the course of talking about this vastly inferior movie, which I think does certain things well, but on the whole is, in my opinion, the worst adaptation of Emma. So that sets the scene for the kind of conversation we are about to be having. I did not care for this movie at all. Before we get into my negative feelings, I'll give a little bit of background on Emma, the novel, if you are not familiar with it, or if you perhaps have only seen Clueless, and that is your point of reference for this story. Most people know who Jane Austen is and are probably the most familiar with Pride and Prejudice, which is the most famous book now. We know very little about her biography because her family burned most of her letters after she died. The early 19th century, obviously, being a writer as a woman was still a bit scandalous. And so for her propriety, they got rid of a lot of her stuff. And so she remains this kind of intriguingly mysterious figure. There's not a great biography of her because there's just not a lot of information. We do know that she had some sort of intense religious conversion experience before writing Mansfield Park, which was the novel she wrote before this. She didn't like convert to a different religion. She was in the Church of England, but she got very intense about religion in some way. And so Mansfield Park is the stodgiest and worst of the books. It's very, very moralizing in an interesting way, but not in a way that's particularly fun to read. The heroine just like suffers a lot. And her cousin, who is a rector lectures at her, and then they get married. It's not a great novel. And immediately after that, she writes Emma, which is like as far from that dynamic as It's full of jips. Yeah. And she said of Emma in a letter or diary entry that does survive, the famous quote about it is, I'm going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. I love Emma, but she's definitely not in the sort of Elizabeth Bennet mold of like a spunky young lady who likes to read and people like to identify with. Like, she's a bit haha clueless and uh, kind of spoiled brat. Which I think makes the novel a lot more interesting than a lot of the other Austen novels. I mean, they're all great in their own ways, except for Mansfield Park. But the fact that Emma is not as obviously sympathetic a character, I think, is part of what makes the novel interesting. But it also makes it really, really hard to adapt, as I discovered watching all the adaptations. Because it's actually quite modern as a novel. People often say that Persuasion, which is the last book that she wrote, was sort of where she made this big stylistic shift. It's more serious and really, really internal. But Emma is also extremely internal while also being very fun. 
everything is happening inside Emma's head. So you'll read the book and there's all this stuff where she sort of starts to have a moment of self-realization and then literally like mid-sentence is like, nope, I can't think that uncomfortable thought, so let's just think something else instead. And it's really fascinating and makes you, or at least me, very sympathetic to her because we all have those thought processes and she's not trying to be unpleasant. Occasionally there's a little bit of that because she is a snob, but she's overall like not a mean person and quite clever. It's just that you're seeing it all inside of her head and outside her behavior is not always the best. And doing that in a movie is really, really complicated because you can't see inside a person's head. So the ITV version from 1996, which starred Kate Beckinsale, which is like fine, but not great. But one of the things they did really well was had these like fantasies and dream sequences that showed what she was thinking in a way that was pretty effective. And the different versions have tried to sort of do different things with this. I think the Gwyneth Paltrow version, which is the most famous one, had just has her saying more stuff to people to try to convey what she's thinking. This movie just doesn't handle it well. I think Emma comes across as just like a huge bitch, which I found very aggravating. Like, she's not meant to be perfect, obviously, as that quote from Austin demonstrates, but you're supposed to like her. And I think the Romola Garai version of this, which was a BBC miniseries around 10 years ago, gets at that really well. I think it's probably the most successful non-clueless version. So from sort of minute one of this movie, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I do not like this at all. I think we should start with the positives before fully leaping into my ire, because this movie does look great. Like, it looks fantastic. It's visually stunning. So it's not a miserable experience to watch if you are me, but I was perplexed by some other choices. Do you want to give us a little bit of background about the creative team? Yeah, yeah. So the director, Autumn DeWild, this is her first feature film, but she's a really experienced music video director and photographer. She's also, fun fact, six foot two. And so obviously, aesthetically, the film is very beautiful to look at. It's ideal for the kind of Tumblr GIF audience. Um, Obviously, I did enjoy it more than Morgan. And it's definitely one of those things that clearly benefits from just not having a lot of attachment to the book, you know, because I didn't have any preconceived notions about what any of the characters were like. So I was like, this is a fun movie. I had some quibbles. I didn't think it was enormously deep. I enjoyed watching it. I was underwhelmed by the male lead. Um, And we are definitely going to be talking about that at length (laughs) in this episode. But um, it wasn't like I was like, oh, this is the worst. But it was just like, he is not grabbing me. But yeah, in terms of the creative team, obviously Autumn DeWild, the director, and then the screenwriter who like, actually the only reason I looked her up is because when I was writing my review, there's an element of this that we'll also discuss later where there's just this particularly racist moment that is quite like UK specific. And I was like, are either of these people British? Is this something which is somehow like slipped through the cracks? And it's like Autumn DeWild is American and the screenwriter is from New Zealand. Her name is Eleanor Catton and she is a very successful literary novelist. She wrote a book called The Luminaries, which is like a bajillion word tome. And uh, she is like the youngest person to win the Man Booker Prize or something along those lines. So she's a very acclaimed novelist, but this is her first film. And I think the rationale was we would like a woman who has literary experience and presumably loves Emma to adapt this. But um, I think Morgan had some critiques on that adaptation. I think the more mainstream response to this film has been sort of middling 
to somewhat positive but not rave, which is basically how it felt. With more criticism to Johnny Flynn. <laughs> yes. The biggest thing that's been getting praise, which I fully agree with, and honestly made it the experience of watching it worthwhile for me, are the costumes. Yes, it is a costume drama. Oh my god. For sure. So the costumes are by Alexandra Byrne, who is... Uh, you know, she's a real kind of A-list or costume designer. She has an Oscar. Um, she has done a number of historical films. So she made Elizabeth, um, the 1990s Persuasion, Mary Queen of Scots, the one that came out in 2018, which I did not see, but the costumes were wild. And she has also done uh, quite a lot of Marvel film costumes, which is like, I imagine, a really excellent source of income. Someone's got to do it. Yes. <laughs> um, Get the money. But, yeah. Yeah, she's just wonderful. And like the costumes in this, they're both really kind of historically researched and just very fun on a just purely purely visual level. Like you don't need to be like, oh, I'm an expert in Regency era costumes to appreciate them. Like there's obviously some creative license, but it's just really enjoyable and very colorful as well because quite a lot of um, Austin adaptations particularly kind of go for quite a naturalistic color palette and there's a lot of like white. And also, especially for the BBC ones, they're usually reusing stuff from the B BBC costume closet. So it's like, yes, of course we have lots of white empire line dresses. And in this, it's like, there's loads of pastels, which I think was directly inspired by the film Marie Antoinette. Although I think Morgan also was like picking up some real Wes Anderson vibes there. Yeah, Marie Antoinette, I hadn't thought of. I just haven't seen that movie in so long, but I'm, I'm sure that you are correct. The Wes Anderson stuff occurred to me more about the production design and just the framing. There's a lot of I was also, yeah, the framing for sure. Like the furniture use, um, this sort of like music box design. And have you seen Grand Budapest Hotel? I mean, I've not seen it, but I am familiar. <laughs> I'm familiar with the many pictures. <laughs> the reason I ask is that there's this whole thing about baked goods in that, and there's yeah. a lot of yeah. cream puff stuff in this. Yeah. The food just looks great. There was an article lying around that I didn't have time to read today, but I'm going to after we finish recording, about uh, Millennial Pink, <laughs> and it's sort of overabundance everywhere, and one of the instances that's being talked about in this article is this movie, and I could not stop thinking about it watching it, because it is everywhere in this film. Like, to a degree yeah. that is a little bit excessive, because I don't think that was a main thing at that time. Like The film that actually, like, kind of reminded me of a little bit as well, which is very different, but is also very geared towards... It's very good to screen cap and put on Tumblr style, which is To All The Boys I've Loved Before, which has got so many beautiful sort of, like, framed... Maybe not literally millennial pink, but millennial pink style uh, kind of shots. As I believe we discussed in this podcast last year, I did not like 12 The Boys We Loved Before at all. I think that's a good comparison, but I think that that movie is more... Like, I found the cinematography of that movie aggravating because it was almost too, like, Instagram-friendly. What can I say, Morgan? You're old. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I stand by my critique. Whereas this felt... But this felt, like, friendly to the sort of Tumblr aesthetic, but I thought the cinematography was really good. Like, it yeah, felt I mean, like a, the director is this really accomplished photographer. Right. But I will say about the costumes, which, again, I was, like, I just stared at them the whole time. I was like, I don't like this movie, but these costumes are so good. It, it was, sure, whatever. They're really mobile as well, yeah. which is crucial. Very so, mobile. There's a woman, Hilary Davidson, who's a scholar of, like, Regency-era fashion. Maybe all the 19th century, but I think specifically Regency-era is her period. She just published a book called um, Dress in the Age of Jane Austen, Regency Fashion. She's a great follow on Twitter. I will link to her in the show notes. And she was just beside herself 
when this movie came out because she was like, this is by far the best Austin adaptation in terms of costumes I've ever seen. And she thought that there were a couple things that were sort of like knitwear that were not historically accurate, which she ascribed to the Outlander effect. But that other than that, literally every single piece of clothing in this is historically accurate, which is just like mind-boggling because that's so not how this usually works. I was thinking of the costumes in the 2004 Pride and Prejudice, which I think are really interesting and cool, and I love that movie, but they're so influenced by 2004 clothes. Yeah. There's a And they're also aiming at something very different there. Yeah, but like there's a classic moment in that that I remember every time I watch it, I'm just like, oh my god, where they're at a ball and there's a woman in a spaghetti strap dress <laughs> and at the time and now i was just like why have you done this like this is just a step too far i can't take it and this fact they use all the bright colors which were not not used then but as you say aren't used as much in these adaptations make it feel alive and accessible to us now but the detail of the costuming isn't designed to make it feel sort of modern to us it's totally in that time yeah which i just found unbelievably pleasurable i was just like i love this i mean there's lots of business with sort of frills and hats and accessories and like the thing that's really absurd in this movie is the hair um because obviously most good jane austen adaptations they do go for the thing where you like put your hair around a red hot poker to give yourself a minuscule ringlet which is like a very comical kind of ancient Roman inspired hairstyle. But in this, they've got a couple of other characters who, because they're not the protagonist, have even more creative license to embrace some of the pictures you'll see in like Regency era hair illustrations. And like Mr. Elton's wife, whenever she was on screen, I was just like, thank you for really just leaning into this whole experience. Amazing. (laughs) The movie it most reminded me of in terms of costumes was Bright Star, which I don't think you have seen. No, no, I've not seen that which is about John Keats and Fanny Braun, the woman he was in love with. And she was a, she made her own clothes. She was, I don't know if she was professionally a seamstress, but like that was her thing was that she made clothes. And so the costumes are amazing because they're meant to like show her personality and have lots of really like wild roughs and stuff because she's going for it. And I just appreciate so much the willingness to really engage with what was historically happening at the time, as opposed to trying to make us feel like we recognize what we've seen in movies before like there a lot of the roughs and stuff i had never seen in a film like that kind of style but it just felt so correct i was really really taken with that element of it i wish the rest of the movie had been better but if you're someone who's interested in clothes like honestly you should just go see this movie for that reason alone um it was really really astounding so congratulations to the costume designer and i guess to autumn wild for hiring her because like a plus job on that collect your oscar in 10 months time and uh moving on to (laughs) to the substance of the film which i did not like at all i mean it sounds so awful to say but i really feel like autumn dewild and eleanor catton just like don't understand this book i i don't have any other explanation for what occurred Okay, so I know that you had objections to the way they kind of interpreted like the the class and politics stuff in this movie and that they dumbed it down. Uh, my experience of watching this film is I was like, there is some mild 
and pleasant kind of satirical portrayals of her as like a comically rich person and there is some kind of inevitable stuff about the class divide between her and her friend because like the main plot is about this kind of posh vain but ultimately quite likable girl who befriends a poor inexperienced naive girl and kind of nurtures her but also she's like a big meddler so she meddles in the love affairs of all of her neighbors and um, eventually finds love like that's the premise of the film which we are now introducing like 15 minutes into the podcast (laughs) just fyi um but yeah like i i didn't think it was like enormously insightful but i was like there's definitely some kind of social satire stuff going on here but you were basically of the opinion that it is far inferior to the original Emma in that regard. A two-hour movie cannot convey a 400-page novel. It's not possible. I, I understand that. And all of the adaptations have certain things that they do well and certain things that they do badly. So the novel is sort of roughly split into two parts. Well, it's in three volumes, but sort of when you think about it, the first chunk is the chunk where Emma is convinced that Mr. Elton, who is the vicar of the town, uh, is courting her protege, Harriet, and it becomes clear that Mr. Elton is in fact courting Emma, and then this is very awkward for everyone. And he goes off and marries this heinous woman and comes back. And then the second chunk is when this young man, Frank Churchill, who is the son of the man who's Emma's former governess has married, comes to town, he's never visited before, there's this complicated family situation. And he kind of courts Emma and she kind of likes him, but not totally. And then it turns out that he has had this secret engagement to another young woman who's visiting the town. And most of the adaptations either like really give the short shaft to one of those storylines or the other, because it's really hard to jam both of them in the same movie. And the book doesn't work unless you have both of them. And so like, again, I understand this is kind of an impossible task, but the whole novel is about, women and money. So Emma, and I wrote about this on the Patreon and I got some really good comments from people that were really made me think about it in a sort of deeper way that was really interesting. So Emma is the only heroine of Austin's who is rich. All the others are need to sort of marry up. Yeah, she's the only one who doesn't have to find love as a job. Yes, and she's very insistent in the novel that she's not interested in getting married. Not that she would never do it ever. She's not like Joe and Little Women who's just like, fuck this. I do not want to get married ever. But she's sort of like, why would I bother? I've never been in love. Doesn't appeal to me. I have so much money. What is the what is the draw? And there's a great conversation where Harriet asks her and she's like, but you'd be an old maid spinster like Miss Bates if you didn't marry. It's so horrible. And I was like, no, 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 because I'll be rich. So it doesn't matter if I never marry because if I'm a rich old spinster, then people have to respect me. And she picks up this girl, Harriet, who is uh, a natural daughter of someone, which means that she doesn't know who her parents are. And basically it's just like, you're going to be my project. They make the friendship much more sincere in the movie. It's not that Emma's not sincere, but it's totally just a narcissistic projection of like, I'm just going to make people like you and I'm going to boss you around. And um, poor Harriet is just like her life gets totally destroyed by this woman who's well-meaningly but cluelessly bossing her around. I thought Mia Goth was so fun in that role. Yes. She was really cute She in is this. really, really wonderful in this movie. Like, truly one of the highlights for me. And Mia Goth has range. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
She does a lot of horror movies. They're very extreme. Her first movie was Nymphomaniac, and now she's playing like the ingenue, like almost a decade later. Love her. Love yeah. her. <laughs> and she really humanizes that character because the book is sympathetic to her, but she is ultimately a bit of a silly person in the novel. And I think you feel very sympathetic to her in this movie. So Emma has to tell her, actually, this guy you're in love with is in love with me. So like, sorry about that. And she feels really, really bad. Like, she's really upset that this has happened. Emma is. And then they go on and then Harriet falls in love with Mr. Knightley, who is the guy Emma's going to wind up with. And he has this huge estate. And Emma has this huge estate. And Emma has been encouraging Harriet to go after these guys who are above her social standing. And as soon as Harriet is like, actually, I I think Knightley is in love with me and I love him. Emma thinks to herself, I wish I had never met her. This is unacceptable. Like, no, no, no. And she realizes that she loves Mr. Knightley. And basically the way the book ends is that she doesn't even go see Harriet to tell her that she and Mr. Knightley are going to get married. She writes her a letter and is just like, bye. Like, uh, this is awkward. Like, see you later. And Harriet goes off and stays with her sister for a while. And then she eventually marries the farmer she was going to marry in the first place. So the people stay in their classes and it's all fine. So it's kind of conservative in that way, right? Like the rich people get married and they consolidate their assets and it's great. And the poorer people stay in their station. But there's just this sort of discomfort with the whole situation because the guy Harriet was going to marry in the first place and does wind up marrying is actually a good person. And Emma was snobby about him. And it's like, no, he's a like decent guy. Whereas some of the other higher class men, like Frank Churchill and Mr. Elton, are just cats. Like they're just huge assholes. And the Jane Fairfax character, who's the one who has the secret engagement, is this sort of weird figure at the middle of the book who is just stranded waiting for this guy to acknowledge that he'll marry her or else she has to become a governess. That was the one element actually, now I ever think about it, that did kind of felt like puzzling to me when I was watching the film. Like the Jane Fairfax subplot, I just didn't really get where, where they were going with it. So there's this, it's this whole thing. She, she is from like a good family, but she doesn't have any money. So she's going to have to become a governess. And it's this huge thing. I don't think they mention that at all in the movie, that she has to become a governess and she doesn't get married. And he's basically, he, he does love her, but he's just like, well, I can't marry you until my mom dies. So I don't know. And then he flirts with Emma the whole time, which is bad. And she's really, really upset, but she can't say anything. And it's this whole drama. And they wind up getting married at the end, but you're sort of like, well, this sucks because he sucks. (laughs) Like, Okay. And it's sort of the conventional wisdom is that that's the um, inspiration for Jane Eyre because a lot of the plot of Jane Eyre is very similar to that. But... In this movie, Emma is just like, fuck Jane, fuck Jane Fairfax, that bitch, I hate her so much. And in the book, she's sort of like, I've never been able to sort of be friends with her, and I know I should, and I'm just really uncomfortable, like, she's better than I am, like, what am I going to do? And that's the kind of subtlety that I think the movie was missing. Like, it just wasn't, they didn't get it. There's just something deeper that wasn't there. The end of this movie, everything works out fine for everyone. Emma goes and, like, makes nice with the farmer that Harriet's going to marry, and, like, invites her merchant father to their house because she's learned that class differences don't matter. And I was like, that is not what this book is about at all. And I get adapting something for like a modern era, but they've made it less interesting. 
Like, what's interesting about Emma is that it's naughty and complicated in that way, and that she is a snob. And instead of making her a snob, they've made her mean, which is not interesting to me. Well, I didn't find her particularly mean so much. I mean, I found her a bit mean, but, like, I was still very charmed by Anya Taylor-Joy. But your criticism just now actually reminded me of a conversation we had when we were talking about Little Women, which is the reason why Little Women sticks with everyone, is it because it, like, burrows its way into your emotional hindbrain because there's so many emotional problems with it. And the thing that really sticks with you is the conflict and the flaws. And in this case, the reason why this movie just... it's likable if you're not someone who has like a lot of bones to pick with it, but it's not memorable. Like it is, apart from the costumes, not a memorable movie. And there isn't any particularly real anguish or like thought provoking moments in it. And that sounds pretty much bang on what your problem is here. Right. The genuinely upsetting stuff that happens in the book, they've almost, they've gotten rid of almost all of it, which I don't understand. The one really awful thing that Emma does is there's a scene with Miss Bates, who's the sort of spinster poor woman in town who she's friends with she's never stopped talking she's very annoying and they're on this outing to box hill and emma says something really rude to her and she's very upset it's in every adaptation right it's like a bus scene in the movie it has to be in all of them and the way it's said in the book there's like a game that everyone has to say like three dull things or something i don't know and miss Bates says I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ev- as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? Looking round with the most good-natured, good-humored dependence on everybody's assent. Do you not all think I shall? Emma could not resist. Ah, ma'am, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to number, only three at once. And in the movie, they change it to something like, I wish I'd had a notepad to write it down. They change it to something like, but like you couldn't stop yourself from saying only three. Or something like they even simplify that language as though the audience couldn't understand what I just read. And I was like, this is the problem with this adaptation is that like every single thing has been dumbed down to like, oh my god, there's a whole thing where Jane gets sent a secret pianoforte from her secret fiance. When they reveal the engagement, Emma's like, he sent her the pianoforte. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like, thanks for thanks for letting me know. <laughs> and just little things like that, or like that change of the dialogue I just mentioned obviously doesn't really matter. Like people who haven't just read the book are not going to pick up on that. But there was lots of little stuff like that, where because I am really familiar with the book at this exact moment, they changed lots of things to make to take out the interesting bits. So one more example, uh, Emma thinks that Harriet is in love with Frank Churchill and actually she's in love with Mr. Knightley. And when she goes and sees her, after she finds out that Frank Churchill is engaged, she's thinking like, oh my god, she's in love with someone else who's going to marry this other woman. Like, what a nightmare. She goes in to see her and Harriet's like, isn't that the strangest news about this like secret engagement? Like, what amazing gossip. And Emma's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, aren't you upset? And she's like, no, why on earth would I be upset? And then they have to have this weird conversation where they realize that actually they've been misunderstanding each other. And instead it starts out with Emma being like, I'm so sorry that Frank Churchill's getting married and you'll be sad. And it's just, it seeps away drama, right? Like that's the first thing I just described is inherently more interesting than the way they did it in the movie. And there's no reason for them to have made that change. And there are so many moments like that throughout the film that they did that for no reason that I can discern. But like, why? 
Why? Well, I don't get like, it. As someone who wasn't familiar with the original text, the thing that I like really had a bone to pick about when I watched it that I found extremely jarring, which people will be aware of if they've read my review, is the thing that I mentioned earlier, which is there's this one like really minor subplot, which is just racist. <laughs> and it's very... It felt very clueless in a film that generally felt like it was like, oh, this is kind of a class conscious comedy that is just kind of harmless and nice and fun to watch and like rated G. There's a subplot where Harriet uh, is like, there's like a conceit where she needs to be like in trouble and injured and then has to be helped by one of the men. And in the movie, it's like she is, it's described as that she is set upon by gypsies, which is like a word which in a modern context, would not even be used. That is a racial slur by, like, modern standards. But, like, in the context of the movie, I was just like, why is this here? Because the only function of that scenario is for her to have been, like, mugged, basically. And this is probably, for some people, like, a really minor detail, but I was just like, literally, what the fuck are you doing? Because in the UK at the moment, there is some majorly disturbing kind of racist oppression happening towards the traveller community in the UK. It is perhaps like the most, I guess, like socially acceptable form of racism. It's a grim situation in Britain and it's very much kind of promoted by this sort of very casual stereotyping. It's very rare to see any people who are like in the public eye, who are of Romani descent or in the travelling community. It's like just vanishingly rare. You do not get like fictional things that are not like exoticized historical dramas and I was just like no need to have this and I was like I guess they must just be obsessively accurate to the book but they clearly felt like they couldn't not put it in yeah but I mean you could just have it be like oh I've been attacked by thieves oh I was in the forest and I was attacked by thieves it's the same function I'm not I'm not I would have changed it I'm not defending it but my interpretation of the way they did it was they felt like they they didn't it felt like it was too important for whatever reason to not put in because they didn't actually depict it they just had him carrying no. her in. And I was like, okay, you clearly know that you don't want to actually deal with this, right? Yeah. So, because in the book, it's a much more involved thing. And some of the other adaptations have done a more involved version. The best one, again, is the 2009 one, where they, they come back and Harriet's like, oh my god, I was attacked by gypsies. And it's like four random children who are just like playing in the forest and are just like like happen upon her and are like ah! like and she's like oh my god i've been attacked and you know so in that case clearly they also were like well, we have to put it in but how can we subvert it in some way and in this they were just like uh we'll just have her say it and not actually show anything which i'm sure to them was a yeah it's like just have her be mugged you know there are ways to like work around this very minor yet bad concept not great um Let's talk about Johnny. I think it's time to talk about Johnny. There are two leads in this film. Obviously, Emma's the main lead. And it is a movie, as we have discussed, about her finding love with a man. Johnny Flynn, I don't believe I'd seen in anything significant before now. I think, like, he's he's mostly a musician, but he's got a pretty successful kind of acting career in the UK as well. Mostly kind of indie stuff. This is his most prominent role, but like if you're someone who watches the rom-com TV show Lovesick, you'll definitely know him. He's one of the leads. It's a very popular show. Um, I remember when he was cast in this, like Morgan and a couple of our mutual friends were very kind of dubious about his casting. 
he's also starring in the David Bowie movie, which I am now like absolutely like literally what the fuck. Like, okay, yes, he can sing and play guitar, but what the fuck? Well, also they can't use any of Bowie's music in that movie. So that's hilarious. That is hilarious. What a terrible idea. But um, yeah, in this, it wasn't that he was like really bad, but it was just like, you are not selling this at all, right? Because the way people talk about this character is he is like the guy. He is like the hottest guy. It's true. He's really seductive. And we're not talking about looks here because like you don't need to be like a supermodel to be a Jane Austen lead. The whole point is all kind of personality and energy and like sexual tension and romantic tension and like intelligence and just the, the vibe. And here it's like he's okay There's a couple of scenes where he kind of reaches an adequate anguish level. But I was like, I'm just not shipping it very strongly. Like, by the end, I was like, well, I'm pretty glad you got together. But for the first third of the movie, I wasn't fully clear that he was the love interest. And I was also like, maybe, like, Emma and Harriet should get together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you're even giving him too much credit. I have seen most of Lovesick, and he's fine on it. It's a very... He's playing, like, the Ted Mosby sort of boring man leading role. And I mean, I, I, people, people like Lovesick. I wouldn't say that people single him out particularly as the highlight of Lovesick, but, you know. It's a very good show, and he is by far the most boring part. In a, like, the role is the most boring thing about it. He's, he's doing his job playing the sort of straight man at the center of the drama, right? He just is so wrong for this, I can't even begin to describe so Mr. Knightley, he's much older than Emma, which is can be difficult to dramatize also in current adaptations because it just feels a bit odd. Well, this was interesting as well, because like in this in this movie, so it's like Anya Taylor-Joy is young. You know, she's 23 now. She was 21 or 22 when the film was being made. Johnny Flynn is in his mid-30s. He's 36. So like, yeah, it's a significant age gap. But, like, the way he looks is very ambiguous because, like, occasionally you're like, this guy is older, but it kind of felt like they were trying to style him to look younger and his hair situation is kind of peculiar. I was like, what? (laughs) Well, his skin, like, clearly he's not 30, right? Like, he's aging like a human is what it is. But he just doesn't read as older because he just has this vibe of, like, a... He's not playing it. He's he's boyish, right? Yeah. And I was just like... The knowledge of knowing, like afterwards, once you'd explained to me that he is meant to be older, it was just very peculiar for them to just not have, you know, introduced the correct vibe for this relationship. Well, they just barely introduced any vibe. Like he just, the way I just kept trying to think in my mind, like, how would I describe this man? And I was like, he's just like a wet towel, just sort of shoved into some clothes. Who's just kind of there. He helpfully mansplains so she can learn to be a better person. And, I mean, in the book, he does that. That is his role. He tells her, you gotta do better. Like, he is kind of, I mean, obviously don't want to use the word paternal, because that's weird. But he is an elder authority figure. He is by far the moral authority of the book, which they don't get across at all in this movie. He, like, brings food to Miss Bates and her family, because they don't have as much money. He is really kind of... Jane Fairfax because he gets that she's a good person and in a not great situation. All the people he dislikes turn out to be the people who suck. And he's the one who's like, no, Robert Martin is good. Harriet should marry him. He is correct about literally everybody. 
he is the correct person. And he clearly loves Emma from the get-go, although it's handled in a pretty sly way. But he knows that she's immature, and so everyone else in the book just kowtows to her. Which is why him lecturing her feels okay. Because she's so spoiled, and everyone else is just like, oh my god, Emma, she's so perfect. We love her so much. And he's like, you've been an idiot. (laughs) Why are you doing this, right? And so the dynamic to me feels fine, because it's not that he's just sitting around being like, let me tell you all the things you've done wrong, which is more what Mansfield Park feels like. It's that he's the sort of only voice of reason, and she never listens to him. He'll he'll sort of lecture her, and she'll just be like, go away. (laughs) Like, I don't care about this. And in this, he literally is just kind of like there. He occasionally says a thing. He has no charisma. And his hair's bad. And I was just like, what is this? I do not accept this. He is no no Colin Firth. No, no. Mark Strong played the best version of this character. Mark Strong is like the right energy for this. I can very, very much imagine that. Yeah. And Johnny Lee Miller was very good also. He was kind of more like snarky than in the book, but they made it work. This is just like baffling to me. At one point after he sort of had a romantic failure, he like goes back to his big house and like lies down on the ground in a Byronic fit of anguish. And I was just like, what is this? This is not That was one of the very youthful moments because I was kind of like, oh, he's having some emotions. But then I was like, he's meant to be like 40? (laughs) No. So yeah, I just felt like they didn't get what they were supposed to be doing. And obviously, you know, in theory, an adaptation is a separate thing for the book, right? So I always attempt to evaluate things separately, but it doesn't really work for a classic like this, because even if you're not in my position of having completely immersed yourself in a book in this way, people just have preconceived expectations in a way that are impossible to get away from. Which doesn't mean you can't make any changes or do anything original. Like the 2004 Pride and Prejudice, which I actually prefer to the miniseries, although I like them both a lot, definitely does some sort of interesting new stuff with that book. It's got more sort of big emotions than Austin novels do generally. And I think that works. And the thing that's the most successful about this movie to me, aside from the visuals, is Mr. Elton, who is played gloriously by Josh O'Connor, whom I adore who is the vicar. And in the book, he's just an asshole. Like, he's really just a jerk. And Josh O'Connor is so full of soul that in this, he's a jerk, but he's also kind of just like an awkward man. Like, you can tell he's just really uncomfortable all the time. And that the jerk stuff is kind of a cover for how uncomfortable he is. And I think it's partially the screenplay and the direction like there's a great scene where they're all at dinner and he like can't make conversation with people because he just like doesn't know how to do it but a lot of it is in his performance he's very fun and he also has a really great costume role in this because generally the men's costumes are like they're a bit more kind of straight out central casting but he's got this great sort of a vicar situation with like big old ribbons and oh it's great (laughs) So he's simultaneously really funny, which that role should be. And then when Mrs. Elton comes on the scene, she is also really, really funny. But the scene where he proposes to Emma is always played for laughs because it's funny. So Alan Cumming plays that character in the um, Paltrow version. And he is hilarious. I mean, oh my God, just sublime. That has really sold that movie to me. That's making me want to watch that. He's the best part of it, I think. It's overall pretty good, but he's, he's the highlight, I would say. But in this, 
the scene starts off funny and then it gets genuinely very sincere and he's clearly having a miserable time and really wants her to say yes whereas in the book it's played completely like he's totally just after her money and that is it and in this it has so much pathos and i was like you have stripped out all of the difficult parts of this book and yet josh o'connor is just like let me all my emotions will come out at you for fucking mr elton like what is happening but i thought that was interesting like i was like you want to humanize this guy that's great but you have to sort of have that level of thought for the rest of the movie right and it just didn't there so i try to be open-minded but there's interesting changes and bad changes and this movie felt to me like it was mostly on the latter end of the spectrum but if you like clothes you'll like this and if you've never read emma then <laughs> it's probably will be diverting yeah, I mean, I think people are enjoying this. It's not like shaking them to their core in yeah. the way that, you know, a couple of Pride and Prejudices have. We've mentioned this before, but um, we recommend Love and Friendship. Under-recognized oh. Oh. Jane Austen masterpiece. Hysterically funny. Perfectly cast. You won't know what's going to happen because it's not one of the famous ones. Delightful movie from beginning to end. Just amazing. Amazing. I was thinking about that a lot because Kate Beckinsale is in the the version of Emma that Mark Strong yeah. is in also. And he just acts her off the screen. She's really, really young, and she just doesn't have the ability to do it yet. And it's a bit unfortunate because they're so unevenly matched. And I was watching it, and I was just like, this is kind of awkward, but one day, one day you will <laughs> get there. We know that Kate Beckinsale will ascend. It will after be fine, doing you know? many roles where she's a sexy vampire hunter or what have you, she has ascended, and one loves Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> oh, she's the best. Yeah, that movie is just sublime. Yeah, if you like this episode, recommend it to a, you know, high school Jane Austen student in your life and or listen to our North and South podcast, which was heavily footnoted also. Yes, <laughs> I do love me some 19th century literature. Yeah, and just to remind listeners, you can request movies on Patreon. That is one of the options. Yeah, on Patreon, we have like Patreon only minisodes. But if you throw 50 bucks in our direction, we will watch any film or like two or three TV episodes that you wish. Yes. So you can control us. We can. We will watch whatever the hell you want. Uh, we are your puppets. Right. <laughs> so all that can be found at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, where I will soon be doing various uh, film reviews from South by Southwest. And you can find me on Twitter, as always, at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.